Father, so far, there's such an example of Paul here, how he persevered, and Nehemiah, and Moses, and David, and all the people in the Old Testament, the prophets that were persecuted and killed. And they did this knowing that they had an inheritance that lay ahead of them. May we have this same mindset as we go through the book of Acts chapter 18, that we would have the same love just as it says in Philippians, that we would have this same love being one in spirit and in purpose. Lord, teach us what that means. Teach us that we might have that sacrificial look on life. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so he, he met Aquila and found out he was a tent maker, and he, I think he at some point said, well, let's go into business together. And this is before Silas and Timothy end up showing up. And so he ends up staying there, for a year and a half. Now, in verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So it was Timothy and Silas and other churches that were donating to the work, and so Paul could go out every single day and be a witness. Verse 6, but when the Jews opposed Paul, there it is again, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, you, you, excuse me, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So this idea, he shakes out his clothes. Now he would have had a cloak of some type. He would have grabbed it and shook it like that. And he go, what is that? Where you take your clothes and you shake them. Is that like, I'm done with you. Something that we might do today that might be what we would think is the equivalent is maybe we have a book in our hand, we throw the book down or, you know, you take your hat and you throw it down on the ground or whatever, you kick some dust or whatever the case might be. This was much more significant, this idea of shaking his robe out like that. And I'll be getting to that uh, right now where you shake off the dust. It is really a sign of judgment that you're delivering to somebody. If you were at a restaurant and your pizza wasn't cut right and they decided not to fix it, would you take your sweater and say, fine, and you shake it off like that and they would look at you like, you are weird. You know, they, they would not understand what this is. This is something that is in the context of Judaism and the people of that day. Now, where does this go to? Remember... That Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus he sends out the 12 and he goes on to say in verse 14 of that chapter if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town I tell you the truth it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town so Jesus said pick up your sandals and just to 
brushing them off like that and do it in front of them while you're looking at them, you scowl a little bit, you know, the, the stink eye, whatever it might be. You're looking at them and you're letting them see you're dusting everything off. You take your cloak, you dust off your shoes. And Jesus said to do that. Well, what about, it's a repeat in Mark chapter 6, verse 8. He says it again in verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Now, there's clues in both of these. One is judgment back in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 15, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment. And in Mark chapter 6, in verse 11, it says, as a testimony against them. So the shaking off of the dust, either of your cloak or your feet, was a sign that they are now under a curse and there is a judgment to come and they will die. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you, what? Genesis. There, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. This is a curse they came on the human race because Adam and Eve fell and they're going to return to dust. The dust is what is a sign of a judgment that is to come. Now, what was Adam made of? Adam was made of snips and snails and puppy dog tails. No, no he wasn't. He wasn't made of sugar and spice and everything nice either. He was made of dirt and of course we're guys are always dirty right we're we're made of dirt I, I want to read to you what it says in Genesis and I want to point out to you Adam and the word for dirt it says there was no one to work the ground but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground the word for ground there is Adam uh, and AH is on the end so watered the whole surface of the Adama. Then the Lord God formed a man, Adam, that's the word in the Hebrew, from the dust of the ground, Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the Adam became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the Adam he had formed the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the Adama. There's a word play going on in there. It's like dirt, earth, Adam. Adam is dirt. Dirt is Adam. And if you have this dust, like you are going to be dust. You are going to die. There is a judgment on you. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you use this on anybody at any time. Well, why would I say that? Because we know that in the book of Romans, it says that we are to bless and not curse. And this is a curse that you would bring on somebody. We know that there are all forms of sinners of which we are part of that group. 
And some can be really bad and some can be really, really bad. And you could bring a curse on them. God says, don't do that. Love even your enemies. And as I said previously, if you tried to do that in today's society, unless you were a Jew that understood the Old Testament or a Christian that knew about this in the Bible, you would just be speaking on deaf ears. They wouldn't understand what you were saying. They wouldn't, oh no, a curse is coming upon me. You're crazy. Get out of here is what they would say. But back then, this had tremendous significance. So basically, if the dust is shaken off a person who does so is saying to you that you are judged and you are going to die and you are going to turn into dust because of this. And of course, eternally speaking, it means you will be cursed under the judgment and be sent uh, to hell. Now, in verse 7, we have an assurance that, that Paul receives against being harmed. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler. Now, this is in Corinth. And his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And next we get to uh, Galileo, and this is God's doing, that God protected Paul in the adjudication of his case that the Jews were bringing against him in front of the proconsul. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, or Achaia, however you determine it should be pronounced, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Now this Galileo guy, apparently he was... According to church history, he was a a real likable guy. Everybody really liked him. And he just turned around and said, get out of my courtroom. What are you doing wasting my time here? And then in verse 17, it says, then they all turned to Sosthenes. By the way, this word means savior of his nation. The synagogue ruler and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. So you you see what's going on here. He stands on his platform, his diaz, his lectern, whatever it might have been. He was sitting there listening to what's going on. He goes, get out of my court. And here's Sosthenes right there. And he's probably going, uh-oh, this is not good. And everybody who's in the court looks at Sosthenes and said, dude, you brought us in here. This is bringing trouble on our heads because of what you're telling us to do. And of course, all the Jews through all these cities, they're passing word and they're trying to get Paul killed, removed from the city, persecuted, doing whatever they can. So all these people turn on Sosthenes. And Sosthenes, I'm sure it's like I previously said, he goes, man, this is not worth it. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going through all of this. And he ends up probably talking with Paul 
And Paul says, dude, this is what the scripture says. I mean, you're opposing Jesus Christ himself. You need to repent of your sins. And he evangelized him. And apparently it's the same Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Same guy. And it's a tremendous work that God wanted done in Corinth. He stayed there apparently longer than anyone else for a year and a half just teaching people, just working, being a tent maker for a while. And then uh, Silas and Timothy supported him in the work. A tremendous work that, that took place there. And I think I showed you the map before, but if you look at that area of the world... It is now the Orthodox Church, but they're all Christian in that area. It hasn't been taken over by the Muslims. God wanted a bulkhead, so to speak, established in that area and used Paul to do so. But in order to get to that point, Paul had to go through all the rioting, the ruffians dealing with them, the persecution, the stoning, all of that to get to these people, and he was willing to do so. Even when it came to the end of his life, he knew that his life was going to be over. And he said, you know, it it is better for me if I depart and be with the Lord rather than stay with you, but for your sakes, I'm going to remain. So he was willing to do that. He was willing to sacrifice for the people. How much are we willing to sacrifice for everyone else around us? Are you inconvenienced by people? They call you up and they ask for help and... Fine, I'll be there. All right. And then you hang up the phone. Did you hear that? Yeah. And you start grumbling and I got to go help them do... Paul's risking his life just to speak some words. Not actually help somebody physically necessarily, just to give them the gospel. And I'm going to digress to this again. The restaurant workers... Do they curse the people that come through there? As Christians, do we curse the people that inconvenience us, whether it's at a store? Have you ever gotten a little myth that you have to wait so long at a restaurant or to get your Starbucks? Like, what is taking so long? You know, or you go to the airport and you try to get some food at an airport. All oh, these people here. I just wish I'd go take your flight and let me sit and eat. You know, we have all kinds of reasons to be complaining about all these people around us. But Paul loved all the people around him, even though they would seek to kill him. I think this needs to be our attitude. Now, Paul stayed, verse 18, on in Corinth for some time. And he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. So he takes all these trips to all these different cities and he stops and says, I need a haircut. You need it. What is he doing here? What, what do you mean you need a haircut? Because he had taken a vow. He took a vow not to cut his hair and now it's over and he can cut his hair. It is believed, it's possible, that he took a vow of a Nazarite. Now, the vow of a Nazarite is listed in Numbers chapter 6. And God gave instructions for those who could take the vow of a Nazarite. You should know two people automatically who took the vow of a Nazarite. First in the Old Testament, real famous guy, real strong guy, Samson. Samson took the vow of a Nazarite. It was his job to fulfill the vow of the Nazarite, but apparently he did a little bit of drinking and biving and uh, you know, sleeping with some women around him. But he still had this vow of the Nazarite that he was under. Of course, God used him to judge 
uh, the Philistines at that particular time. And in the New Testament, who had the vow of a Nazarite? John the Baptist. He was the one. Now, what are the conditions with the vow of a Nazarite? You're not supposed to drink anything made from grapes or any alcoholic drink. You can't eat the grape. You can't eat the seeds. You can't eat the skin. You can't, you're not supposed to touch it at all. Also, <clears throat> you're supposed to cut your hair at the end of the vow, but in the middle of it, you were to just let it grow. All those curly locks are just supposed to be flowing back there, and you put it back in a ponytail or a bun, you know, however they would do it. They, they would just, just stick that hair up there, and they would, and you imagine they have all this hair. Now, Paul, I, I think he was bald, but the rest of the people who would do this, they get this long hair, and if you're a man in Israel, you had this beard too, and the longer the beard, the macho or the man, you know, so you had this long beard that was down there and this hair flowing. It's like, yeah, crazy man that is out there. It looks like he has all this hair everywhere. And sometimes the Semitic people, they have hair. Have you ever noticed, men, as you get older, hair starts popping up out of everywhere? You know, the nose, the, the ears, the earlobes. You get a strange one coming out the back of your neck. And it's just like everywhere. Well, the Semitic people, they happen to be a little more hairy just by their genetics. And, you know, a gorilla man would be out there. And, and so Paul, now he may not have had much hair in his head, but he could have just had a sweater on uh, on the outside with all the hair that would have been there. And you're not supposed to cut the hair on your head. So he, he would have had, pro, I don't know if he was 100% bald or he had the rim going on. And if he had the rim just grow all the way down, if you know who Riff Raff was, that, that was a, quite a, a character. It's, it's, it's not too pretty, uh, so to speak. And so you can't cut your hair in the middle of this, and you can't go near a dead body. And at the end of this, you're supposed to bring offerings to the tabernacle or to the temple, and you're supposed to cut off the hair, and on the coals or on the wood that's underneath the sacrifice, you're to take your hair and you're to throw it into the fire, and that's supposed to be the end of your vow at that particular time. And it is believed that Paul did this, that for his missionary trip or for a period of that missionary trip or the time that he was in Corinth, he took this vow and he needed to end the course of this particular vow. And he went to Sancria to do that. And so that's what's going on with him getting a haircut. He had to cut the hair. Now, some people have theorized that every picture almost that we see of Jesus, what does he have? Long hair. And they say, he must have taken the vow of a Nazarite. Why wouldn't that be true? Think about it a minute. It, I don't believe he was for good reason. He drank wine. And if you have a vow of a Nazarite, you can't drink wine. And we know that he did so at the Jewish Passover, at least, in the, in the first miracle at Cana. He had wine there. And it doesn't say that he drank it, but if you're at a wedding... And, and by the way, one precarious aspect of this is people didn't regularly drink water because it usually caused stomach problems. They drank wine because it had alcohol in it. Now, a lot of it was diluted at that point, and then there was good wine that wasn't so diluted. I don't know, 5 to 12% by volume alcohol. I don't know what it was. But if you stop drinking 
wine and you started drinking water, you were going to have some problems. And that's part of the suffering that a person under the vow of a Nazarite would be under. Go to any foreign country today, open up the tap, get a full glass of water and down it. I think you're going to need some Cipro after that. It's a little bit of medication. And if you don't have that Cipro, you're going to have a miserable existence. Now, there were some ways to purify water back then, but that wasn't available to the general population. And so I don't believe Jesus was under the vow of a Nazarite. And Paul, why would he be under the vow of a Nazarite if he wasn't following the Old Testament law? I thought he was under the New Testament at the time of grace, dispensation of grace. Well, Paul was not under the law, but under grace, but he was free to participate in these rituals. If somebody wanted to participate in a Passover Seder or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Pentecost, they're more than welcome to do so. But knowing that all of those point to Jesus Christ, and it is not those things that make the individual sanctified or set apart or holy. You can participate with that. It's all good. But just keep in mind, Paul was not under the law, neither would we be if we were under the law. So verse 19 says, They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Quilla. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up north, or he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So we see Paul kind of ending this missionary adventure. If you get to verse 23 in that chapter, that begins his third missionary adventure. And it would have been a fruitful time of him going around. But I want to apply this, what, what Paul has been going through and the way he has been attacked I want to first encourage you to go home this afternoon and meditate on one thing. I want you to just sit in a chair or go out back, sit in a lawn chair, whatever you want to do, and just think about this for a second. How great was the love in Paul that he would be willing to suffer the punishment in hell if only his people would be saved? What kind of love is that? The same with Moses and Nehemiah and all of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. All of those people, they were willing to do this on behalf of Christ. And you have to meditate on that and go, do I love in that same way? Or am I just wanting to do things my way? This is the way it needs to be done. Rather than sacrificing all for the sake of Christ. So ask yourself the question, do I have the same love that was in Paul and also in Jesus? And secondly, when things are going your way, or I should say, when things are not going your way, don't go up to somebody and shake off the dust of your feet and your clothes in front of them because it would bring down a curse on them. Now, Scripture says if a curse is undeserved, it will not come and land on somebody and remain. It just flies away, so to speak. And, and this raises the question, do you have the ability to bring a curse on somebody? That's a good question. But we know, as I previously stated, we are not to curse anyone. 
We are to look at them with the eyes of Christ and say to ourselves, Jesus loves them just as much as he loves me and everyone else who has ever been born. And you have to keep that perspective. If you do so, it may help you when you go to Wendy's or you go to a restaurant or, you know, wherever you might go, a large gathering of people because there's so many people there that are inconveniencing you. And what you can do if you get that thought, train yourself to start praying for them that they might be saved. My prayer for you is the same that the Lord delivered in Numbers chapter 6. This is the end of the vow of the Nazarite. The Lord said, you are to bless people in this manner. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for Paul and the tenacity, the endurance, the love that he had. It's just, for all intents and purposes in this world, it's unbelievable. But you have shown us that it is the way of truth. I would ask that we'd be able to have that same love, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that same love being one in spirit and purpose, just as he was with you. Help us not to consider ourselves better than anyone else, but give them deference, that we would look to them and see how we can help them. May you fulfill this in us, Lord, that we might be a witness of you in this life. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.